Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Coast to Sunglasses, Turtle Box Audio, All Hands Vodka, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's podcast, we sit down with Captain Ryan Harrington, who is based out of Tampa Bay, Florida, but spends a good bit of his year in Costa Rica as well as the Keys in the Bahamas. Ryan prides himself in being an all-around fisherman who spans from 6 inches of water to 600 fathoms, chasing anything from redfish to tarpon to billfish. In this podcast, we dive into Ryan's motto of no enemies on the water and talk about how a two-hour conversation with C.A. Richardson led to a 15-year mentorship, a relationship that Ryan says has been invaluable. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. Beep, 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 beep. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might, definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Ryan, thanks so much for hanging out with me today, man. It was good to hang out with you last night at Tailwater, and uh, we caught some really bad weather today, and that always opens up a good good opportunity to have a few have a few drinks and talk and get to know one another, and I've, I've really enjoyed just getting to hear more about what you're doing with your business and your background and story, and I'd love for you just to start, really, for you, uh, give an overview, before you even dive into how you got into this, give an overview of, of the scope of fishing that you're running right now. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's a loaded question. Um, a lot of guys, you know, it's a, what do you fish for? What do you do? It's a, a 20 second answer. Um, I, I like to kind of pride myself that, uh, I fish anything from six inches water to 600 fathoms, Mm -hmm. uh, anything, anything in between. So, uh, stay, stay very well-rounded, um, you know, versatile on anything from, you know, your skinny water stuff out to, uh, king fishing, you know, snook trout, redfish, uh, in between there and bill fishing, pelagics, um, and not just here locally in Tampa Bay, but you know, around the world. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, like I said, it's a, could get a long, long yeah. answer out well, of it. Well, let me dive into it a little bit. So when you say around the world, what are the general zones that you got a little bit of background in fishing? Sure. In? So, uh, I was born and raised here in, in Tampa Bay. Um, and then I, my main areas I fish, I'm in Costa Rica a couple months a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so down there a lot, a lot during the winter time, uh, Bahamas, the Keys, um, uh, Boca Grande. So, so what is it? So t- tell me about Costa Rica. What does that setup look like for you? Like what, what types of trips are you running and, and, uh, what's the living arrangements like? Give me a picture into yeah. Costa Rica. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, a couple years ago I got blessed with, uh, you know, some, some mutual friends and worked out to, to, uh, be 
considered uh, the pro angler on the team down there. Mm-hmm. So in the tournament series in Los Sueños in the Triple Crown, uh, there's one pro angler per per team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was blessed with an opportunity to do that and um, went down for one tournament, turned into a, a good time. And next thing I know, I was down there for three months. So uh, that's a couple years ago and uh, been going back ever since. So, yeah, and I, I don't know much about that world when you're talking about being a pro angler. So kind of unpack what that means and then are you just with one group of people the entire four months three months yes so um so it's kind of a it's a tournament rule as far as you know pro angler Mm -hmm. and that's that's definitely a gray area uh we Mm -hmm. all i think every team rereads that rule you know every year just just to double check but uh their definition it could be different uh you know definitions depending where you are Mm -hmm. Um, but the definition for that tournament series is basically if you've made uh money from the fishing industry in the last 12 months Mm-hmm. So being a guide, there's no way around it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I do one guided trip a year, and, and that's it. So yeah, then I'm considered a pro. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So uh, you're you're marked as a pro. Um, it's kind of a weird, quirky thing down there because they don't want pro anglers. I guess they just don't want a, a team of good sticks together. Meanwhile, you got all these people that uh, you know they're fortunate enough not to have a nine to five job, so all they do is fish, but they don't get paid for it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those teams I would consider professional teams. Uh, but they don't get a direct paycheck from it. So, yeah, it is what it is. And, and I don't know if you said this before, but what are you targeting out of Costa Rica? Yeah, so that's uh, mainly billfish. Okay. So sailfish primarily. Um, there's a lot of marlin that get in there and dolphin, depending on the tournament. Um, now, that the Triple Crown series we fish is only billfish. Okay. Um, it's a good problem to have if you're fun fishing or you're on a charter because there's, there's days you'll get – you know, 15 or 20 Dorado, uh, dolphin, you know, coming in. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a really good charter day, but on a tournament, they, they eat and you just break them off right away. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like just the differences between a guided trip or recreational fishing and, you know, tournament fishing and how that kind of shapes the way that people fish. And, you know, for, for me, like as somebody who's never been to Costa Rica, you know, my understanding is that you can get into these billfish relatively quickly from from the ramp what yep. what's the what's an average day in the tournament chasing those and then what what type of boat are you running there sport fishing wise yeah so uh, i'm on a 55 viking down there um and then also uh, freelance on a, a 72 viking as well uh kind of bounce between a couple teams um but yeah it, it's funny too because we'll have days you know 20 or 25 sailfish is uh that's a good tournament day you're mm-hmm. usually you know somewhere in the, the top five with with those numbers um that's also that's a tournament day so we're fishing a little bit different um we're backing up on the fish we're getting our leader touch and we're breaking them off and and getting more Mm -hmm. Um, now if it's a charter that's a little bit different because you know your 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 clients are flying all that way spending some money to catch a fish they don't want to get a leader touch break it off and not see the fish they Mm -hmm. they want to get up and close uh you know close and personal Mm -hmm. um there's a, a law in costa rica that you can't you can't bring the fish on board which i agree with um it's all catch and release mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, they, similar to the tarpon, you want the picture as close as you can get, you know, the mm-hmm. clients either holding the bill or the mate holding the bill. So if it, if it's a charter, um, you're not going to catch 20 in a day cause you're going to take your time on each fish. You're going to get in next to the boat, get your pictures, you know, reset. So a good charter day, there's, there's still days you can get, you know, six to 10 mm-hmm. billfish out there. So it's, you know, it's, it's still a lot of fun, but, uh, tournaments we're we're just running and gunning and yeah. you know, knock out them points. Uh, I, I don't know if this is an easy answer, but is there one that you like more tournament fishing or chartering? Uh, that's a good question. The, I, I still, I still do like the tournament aspect to be yeah. honest. Um, and it, it's, it's funny cause I grew up with a, a tournament background more than anything before I chartered. Um, I started tournament fishing at 12 years old. 
so I have more of a tournament background, uh, but I think that helps on charters too, because, uh, you know, a tournament like today is a good example. There's a tournament going on right now. Mm -hmm. It's not ideal conditions out there, but when it's a tournament, you go. So yeah. I think I'm used to that mindset of, you know, put your big boy pants on and go and mm -hmm. fish the conditions. Um, now I'm honest with clients too. I'm not going to force them into bad weather, you yeah, know, yeah. but I'll tell them, Hey, if it's a tournament, me personally, I would go. Um, but you as a client, if you can reschedule, it might be a, a good day to do that. Yeah. So. Well, and I always think, I know a lot of guys struggle with that, but you know, just everybody's different. It's like, if it's, if they, if this is their one day a year where they're going to get that opportunity, they'd rather have a medium slash bad day on the water than no day on the water. Right. And then if you're somebody who has the flexibility and calendar where you get a fish a lot, you know, they might say, well, maybe this is a good day to hang out, hang out with my wife in town yeah. or whatever. So I, I definitely understand that, that dynamic. And then you also do stuff down in the Bahamas and Keys. What does that look like for you? Yeah, so uh, the, the Keys, we do the QS Marlin Tournament every year. Mm -hmm. um, that's in July. That's, uh, that's okay. We just talked about Costa Rica, you know, a good tournament. They mm -hmm. have 20, 25 billfish. Uh, the Keys, uh, that tournament's done in, in July around Hemingway's birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the only reason they do it that month, which is uh, the complete 180 opposite. That's beat your head in. Uh, we've been fortunate enough. I believe we've won it twice now. I've uh, had a bunch of top twos, top threes mm -hmm. uh, in that tournament, been pretty successful, but that's a three day tournament. If we can get two billfish in three days, we're going to win it. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, that's a, that's tough. That's a test of patience. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. So the Bahamas, um, that's a, uh, more of a private, you know, fun trip that I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, we go over there quite a bit from Palm beach, make the run over to, uh, usually up to the Northern Abacos, mm -hmm. uh, Grand Cay or Lakaya, um, that area. I did spend, uh, six weeks in Cat Island. Uh, on a 42 elephant um, that's super fishy over there but those are uh those are private trips you know, yeah mostly uh tuna dolphin wahoo uh, and then deep drops in between so so you know you kind of gave me a good overview of kind of the scope and then i know tampa bay is home, home for you home base for you and you were talking about six inches to 600 fathoms talk to me about what the skinny uh six inches kind of water game looks like for you yeah so uh i know a lot of listeners here you know they're they're the true skinny water guys so uh <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna beat my chest like i'm out there pulling and, and mm. getting technical with the fly rod uh, i run a, a 22 ranger and a 24 Mirada, so a couple mm -hmm. bay boats um you know, so when I say skinny water, you know, it's flats fishing mm -hmm. or in a couple feet of water. Um, and I, I totally respect the real skinny water game. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the guys like my mentor in the business is CA Richardson. So mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, uh, got a lot of, a lot of Intel from him on that real skinny water stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of cool because I've done the more of the bay boat side, you know, a couple feet of water and consider it flats fishing until you realize the real technical game is the real shallow water guys. And there's a lot to be learned from me fishing in three foot of water versus those guys pulling in a foot of water. Yeah. Uh, I think they get to read the water better. I've learned a lot from CA, um, where I thought I knew everything about flats fishing mm -hmm. until you like, you know, he's almost got a, a PhD in it uh, mm -hmm. where he's reading the fish. I, I knew how to go out and catch him and where to catch him. He would tell me why I was catching them basically. Um, and so it's, it's cool. I think you can learn from every, every aspect of the, mm -hmm. of the game. Um, and that's why I like being well-rounded because I'll, I'll use those skinny water, you know, tips and techniques and use that for the shallow water, the deep water, the pelagics, everything else. I mean, fish are fish. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even though it's, it's different ball games, uh, you're using the same tools. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You were talking about some people have a quick answer for what do you fish for? You could just start telling them fish. Yeah. Mostly yeah. fish. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> if it's got a tail, I'm going to target it. Yeah. And then you're just going to sound like a smart ass. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with, uh, with 
your kind of relationship with CA, I know you, you have kind of a, an interesting story about how all that started that you've, you've shared with me. I'm curious if you'd be willing just to share a little bit about that and kind yeah. of how that's grown, because I think that would be helpful for people. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so CA and I go back probably, I want to say maybe 15 years. Uh, we put in at the same, the same boat ramp, um, for quite a few years together. And so we had a, a mutual understanding of who each other was. You know, I was nobody at the time. I was just mm-hmm. starting to be a guide and uh, he, he already had a pretty good career in the rap truck and all that. So yeah. uh, TV shows, easy to know who he was. I didn't think, you know, or I just didn't assume he knew who I was, but it was just a, a mutual nod at the ramp. That was about all we got from each other. And uh, I just, I don't like having any, any enemies on the water. Mm-hmm. So um, one day we both got done with a trip at the same time and I just looked him in the eye. I said, Hey, I said, uh, I said, my name's Ryan. And he's like, yeah, I know who you are. I go, okay, let's, well, okay. I was like, that's, <laughs> that's one step. I said, did I ever do anything to kind of upset you or me? I rub you the wrong way. Cause most people on the ramp will have a, a little conversation. Again, we just did a, a, a head nod. So uh typical CA fashion, uh, it was a two hour conversation. We both pulled mm-hmm. our boats out and I didn't know he's, he's bigger than I am. So he walked over to me. I go, oh, maybe I did something <laughs> wrong, you know, yeah. in the past. And I was like, Oh, here we go. Um, couldn't be nicer. Uh, two hour conversation led into 15 years of friendship. So, uh, I actually, you know, look up to him. He's uh, my mentor in the business sponsor wise and fishing wise and everything else. So there's a, there's a mutual respect that we kind of hashed out because I was, I was always running a tower boat. He was always running a, a little skiff in Hell's, Hell's Bay. So in that two hour conversation, he was kind of breaking it down and saying, it's not, it wasn't me in general. It was just the, the fishery and the way the fishery has changed in Tampa Bay that he saw over time. Um, you know, the way the tower boats have changed the fishery and mm-hmm. I didn't argue with them. I, uh, I let him speak. Uh, you know, I, I fished the way that I kind of self-taught myself how to, how to fish and it's running a tower boat, finding fish using a chum bat and chumming up a bunch of redfish and catching mm-hmm. them. Um, he, he's more old school and technical. Um, but again, it's the argument. I respected it. So I let him mm-hmm. talk. And, uh, I think the fact that we had a mutual respect for each other, was, mm-hmm. was kind of an instant friendship. Uh, it's pretty cool. We've kept that up to this day. I and mean, I, I talk to him you know, all the time. And again, he's, he's helped me out quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. And I appreciate everything he's done. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's kind of cool because, you know, I, my personal preference is to, you know, if I can just pick the weather, pick the day, pick the circumstances, I'm usually going to want to be in under five feet of water and being able to sight fish, whatever I'm going for. It's kind of my preferences, but you know, my dad's business, he runs a tower boat and one of my daughters is named after his boat Parker. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's so much cool overlap between somebody who might be in four feet of water with live bait and somebody who might be in five inches of water with, you know, artificial or fly or whatever. And you had alluded to that earlier about how, you know, for you, there's, you learn certain things. Maybe you learn a bunch of stuff, you know, bill fishing that translates over to tarpon fishing that translates over to red fishing. I'm curious if you could just elaborate a little bit more about how you see all those things connecting and maybe what some of the common threads are across all the different disciplines. Yeah. And that, that, uh, that brings me back to, to the mutual respect with CA and what, what he told me that kind of opened my eyes to it is, uh, you know, I think I've, I've touched on how well-rounded I am. So I don't do one thing 12 months a year. Um, and CA kind of brought that up. He said, you know, he said, I'm, I'm not upset with you. And, and he goes, actually, I respect you because you do so many different things. And, and CA has had an incredibly successful career, uh, being the shallow water, technical, skinny, you know, fishing mm-hmm. guy. 
Um, so he's, he's got that niche, uh, but he told me face to face, he said, look, I kind of painted myself in a corner. My audience wouldn't understand if I go out and do something else. Uh, we're on, on the flip end. I, you know, I do all the different things, the mutual respect there. And then, then I started kind of self thinking, well, yeah, I guess it is pretty cool what I do. You know, I, I don't have, I'm not the best at any one of those. Mm-hmm. I'm well-rounded, but uh, a lot of that is because you can use how you kind of alluded to, you can use that, that real skinny water thing in the five inches. You know, you're learning something you can use in four feet of water. You can expand that out. The guy that's fishing five inches of water in his technical skiff, it might be intimidating for him to go offshore, uh, whether it's for blue marlin or even just, you know, kingfish or something mm-hmm. right off the beach. Um, they kind of stick in their zone. They don't want to expand out thinking they might not be good at it. Um, where, you know, honestly, like the bass world, a lot of that stuff has come into to saltwater, some of those techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's easier, easy. It's easier to translate over different types of fishing than mm-hmm. people will give themselves credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just a fishy person and you can, you can target a fish and kind of know, you know, your weather patterns are going to be similar. Um, every, every species is going to have their own technical, you know, you know, technical, uh, you know, differences in between them. But overall, a fish is a fish. It's got a tail and a mouth. So, yeah. uh, and, and you know, I've seen people transition, you know, someone that kind of jokes, they don't know what they're doing. They're throwing something goofy and next thing you know, they're, they're catching fish. Um, actually last year I did, uh, I dabbled in the MLF, uh, bass tour and I can, yeah. I'll be honest, I don't know the first thing about bass whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So I did the whole, uh, the Southeast, uh, series. I fished five tournaments and as a co-angler and each time I did it, you're paired with a random angler. Mm-hmm. So I got the back of the boat. They got the front of the boat. You're allowed five fishing rods and a bat and a bag full of tackle. So I would, I wasn't going to try and go be, you know, Kevin Van Dam and go buy all these, you know, bait casters and ten thousand dollars in different colored worms so i would show up with five spinning rods basically my redfish gear mm-hmm. five spinning rods and my backpack full of tackle consisted of mostly you know little johns and stuff i would throw for redfish mm-hmm. and uh i think four out of the five tournaments i actually outfished the the pro angler on the front of the boat um, yeah and it was it was again just kind of using what i was used to and comfortable with and it transitioned and it actually caught fish so. yeah that's that's a that's a great kind of I think too, just kind of a great reminder of how different groups are able to learn from each other and pull stuff into their place and find success. A friend of mine owns a lure company called Nichols Lures and they have this huge spoon. It's like a, it's like, I want to say it's eight inches. It's, it's called the Magnum. And this thing is like huge and they were doing it for bass, but then all these guys up in uh, the Northeast started really having a lot of success with striper and it was really I mean, doing really, really well with the striper. And so somebody had enough of a foot in the bass world to see something working really well for largemouth bass and to translate it into their own world and had a lot of success. And those, those overlap areas I've, I've found along the way the past five years of really trying to delve into some of the techniques behind all that that there's a lot of really great stuff that got stolen from somebody else's tribe, you know? And so you can learn a lot when you do, when, when you kind of have your foot in multiple little groups and and places. So, you know, I know with, with Tampa Bay, what, what all are you doing here? Because you, you talked about running a tower boat. You got a few boats here. I know you do tarpon, you do redfish. What, what's the setup here kind of out of home base? Yeah. So, uh, mainly, you know, Costa Rica is more of a, a winter fishery for me. So, mm-hmm. uh, December through, you know, March, like I'd be down there, you know, down there a lot. Um, then I come back here for tarpon season. So May, June, July, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty much I'll run every single day for tarpon. Uh, mostly, 
you know, the popular spots down there. I, I'm, I'm in South Tampa Bay, you know, St. Pete. So mm-hmm. I'm fishing, you know, the Skyway, the, the beaches down there, like Mont Key, Bean Point, um, get in the mix, you know, playing bumper boats out there. So mm-hmm. that's uh, that's my May, Ju- May, June, and July, and then uh, transition into flats fishing the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, redfish is kind of my bread and butter, um, but snook trout and redfish. Um, we do a lot of shallow water grouper uh, inside Tampa Bay. You know, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll catch them in four to ten feet of water, you know, keeper gag grouper. Um, and I do delve into some, you know, near shore stuff. I don't have my federal permit, so I stay within nine miles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do a lot of, you know, different species right off the beach. Uh, we do some kingfish, you know, things like that as well. Yeah, and I know you and you and my dad connected over some hogfish stuff and just kind of some of the techniques around that. For you, uh, is is tarpon in your home waters? Is that your favorite species, or yeah. is that just your biggest breadwinner? Yeah, and it's uh, it kind of goes back to being well rounded. So when I when I fish, I like to fish hard. Um, I think last year I did 80, 82 days in a row for tarpon. Mm-hmm. Uh, fished every single day. A lot of eight, ten, twelve hour trips. Um, so I I go super hard on it, and then about the time I get burnt out with it is usually the, the season's over. I switch to something else. Um, so it's always new and fresh and exciting, but, um, overall, yeah, it's tarpon season is the one season I think I, I look you know, most forward to it's, uh, that never gets old and I get goosebumps and my, my clients can see that too. You know, you, you hook a fish and jump a fish and I, I, I'm like a little kid out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I share that excitement on everyone. Um, I hate to say it, but you know, after your, your hundredth or your two hundredth or your three hundredth, uh, sailfish, they, they're, they're fun, but there's no difference in a sailfish or a trout, you know? to me these days yeah um, and I, why, I hate, why do you think that is though uh, i mean tarpon are just i think it's because it's a short time that we have them here um you know mm-hmm. just a couple months a year um you know your snook trout redfish and you know, even sailfish there's a lot of times you can just go out and, and target them you know redfish mm-hmm. we have 12 months a year so uh like if tomorrow if i want to go catch a redfish i can tomorrow if i want to okay, you know get a tarpon i can't so mm-hmm. I think it's maybe the, the supply and demand, if you will. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, something that's only here for a short time and yeah, it's uh, I'm already, you know, getting the itch just thinking about it. So, uh, I know they're starting to show up earlier and earlier, it seems like, but I can't wait till uh, I start my charters like May 1st for them. Mm-hmm. So count down the days. Give me a couple tips on if you're in a bumper boat fishery. Yeah. And that, <laughs> I, so I like to be friends with everybody, you know, in the industry, um, I did put myself out there. I did uh, PTTS the last uh, three or four years they had it. So, yeah, I went and did that. I know it's that, that's controversial amongst, you know, fishermen, uh, but it's something we, you know, we did. And it's, it's you know, on my on my career, I don't I don't regret it. Um, it but it's a love-hate thing. Like, there's your jig fisherman, your live mm-hmm. fisherman. I did it all. Like, when yeah. I was down there, actually, I would move to Boca Grande for three months a year. So I would, I would run charters Monday through Thursday, pre-fish Friday, and fish a tournament Saturday, Sunday. Um, so that's where I cut my teeth in the bumper boats, mm-hmm. um, which now at Bean Point, we basically call that Boca Grand North. Um, mm-hmm. and it's even for clients, so I kind of give them the option. I said, Hey, here's, where we're going to catch fish. You know, we're going to go, go and like, literally you could walk boat to boat. Um, when I put my spot lock on, I usually have one foot on my boat and then one foot on the boat next to me just to keep us that far apart. So if, if we have a foot in between us, that's, wow. that's a big gap. I enjoy it. I kind of. I mean, mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, if, and if everybody works together, it's actually not, not a bad way to fish them. Um, but I certainly understand a thousand percent the people that aren't for that type mm-hmm. of fishing. I, I can agree with them. That's fine. And we'll go have a beer together and talk mm-hmm. about it. It's, uh, I, I don't say one way is better than the other, but, um, that kind of excitement. I mean, my, uh, my range has got dings all over it. Fiberglass dings from mm-hmm. it. Uh, you're literally that close and it's, 
it's like being in a NASCAR race. I mean, the PTTS tournament was only on TV. It looked like it was all day, like an eight hour tournament. It was only a two hour tournament. People said, Oh, I should make it longer. But the only thing it translated to is it's, it's like driving a NASCAR and being in an accident for two those two hours straight, yeah. your head's on a swivel and it's just, uh, it's super intense, but I'll give clients the option and mm-hmm. I'll say, here's how we're going to fish. This is what it's going to be like. If you have anxiety issues or claustrophobic, it's definitely not for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get fish on the beach. You yeah, know, yeah. It's cool. I, I can do both and it's whatever they want. I just, I, I kind of like that excitement of bumper boats. How, so what advice would you give to somebody who's, you know, doesn't let, let's kind of broaden it a little bit, but like is wanting to get into a fishery. Cause you said something earlier that, that I kind of feel personally, I don't want any enemies on the water, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and some people it seems like they don't want any friends and they're like, if I can just be a big enough jerk or scary enough, maybe people will stay away from me. Yeah. Um, and maybe a decent bit of people will, but I'm curious for you, how do you try to not have enemies on the water in a crowded fishery? Yeah. Um, what I tell people is, you know, cause I'll get clients out there and we're all guides, but I think we've all dealt with clients that will charter us to get some tips and then they get on their own boat and try to to you know replicate it which is okay. if people are honest with me too I, I don't mind I'll, I'll share anything that I have um, but one thing I will tell people if they want to get into a spot and it doesn't have to be bumper boats it could be a flat you know in the keys where you're giving each other a thousand yards of space what I what I tell people is just if you're new to a fishery wherever it is or whatever type of fishing just before you barrel in there and, and start throwing a rod around and catching a fish sit back for five minutes or ten minutes or even a day go out there and, and, and kind of pre-fish, but almost don't even bring a rod and just see what other people are doing. Um, for instance, when we're playing bumper boats at a spot like, like Bean Point, if you roll in there for the first time in a boat, we, we're out there every day. So we know what boats are going to be new. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just roll out there and get in line with us, you know, if you don't make a mistake, that's fine. But most likely if you're new to it, there's going to be some, you know, rod tangles, boats hitting, uh, so just take take your time and go out there and sit back and just watch what everyone's doing because we don't do it the same every day either. Some mm-hmm. days we're drifting, some days we're all spot locked. Like if you, but if you sit back for a little bit and and just observe before you fish, mm-hmm. you'll see kind of the pattern of what everybody's doing. It'll make you less of a jerk when you get in that. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not just the bumper boats. If you're if you're looking at a big flat, you know, and you, and you see that the boats are spread out 500 yards from each other and they're all working the same direction or doing whatever, you know, see what they're doing. You're less of a jerk if you kind of get in line with that mm-hmm. and just, just do what they're doing. Yeah. And that, that's interesting. Cause you know, there's some people who like, they're like, don't ever look at me. Yeah. Like I saw you looking at me. Yeah. So I guess the implication is if I'm fishing somewhere, you can never fish there and you can't look at me. Right. And it's, it's different regional. Cause I, yeah, I fish, fish so many different areas. Um, you know, for instance, there's spots in Tampa Bay that etiquette is okay to be 10 foot away from each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a known secret that Weedon Island is a place like that. You can mm-hmm. literally, you can cast over each other's lines in Weedon Island and it, you're not necessarily a jerk. You're just playing the game that's there. Um, mm-hmm. that's, and, and when I go there, I get, I get pissed off when that happens, but I realize, Hey, I went there knowing that that's what's going to happen and it happens. So I, I just, you know, swallow my pride and it, it is what it is. That's the etiquette of that, of that spot. And there's quite a few of them like that. Now you take a place like the keys, it's common etiquette to give, if someone's on a flat, it's common etiquette to give them that entire flat. So it's the opposite. And it's just, it's just where you are in the world and what that etiquette is. And I'm not mm. saying it's right or wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, I wish it wasn't like that, but you have what 3 million people in Tampa Bay fishing, you know, a fishery that's not that large. So, yeah. 
And I mean, it makes sense to encourage people to try to say, pay, pay attention to what people are doing. And people go, Oh, well, you're just trying to, you know, you're trying to fish exactly where I'm fishing. And it's like, well, maybe you're just trying to learn how to get on a flat and like places I've, I've noticed that yet. Everyone has a little bit different etiquette. And so moving slow, it's kind of like whenever my dad was teaching me how to, um, you know, dock boats Mm -hmm. when I was younger, he was like, go slow. It's yeah. better for something to go wrong slow yep. than fast, you so. know? And I think that's true for a lot of things in life. If you think about it, right. Is like, you know, if you're trying to get into the mix in a fishery, it's probably better for you to be slow. Um, and then even something that stood out to me too, about what you said with CA is like, if you feel a little weird tension, maybe the best thing to do is just to come up and say, Hey, did I do something wrong? Right. You know, maybe they're, maybe, you know, a lot of times at boat ramps, some people are just trying to get out really quick because they're trying to get home to their family or maybe they're stressed or maybe they're, I don't know, maybe they're just a jerk, you know? Yeah. But it's good for you to try to clear the air every once in a while. Yeah. It's funny <laughs> you say that when I, when I learned to, to dock a sport fish, it was, uh, the guy that taught me told me, he, he said, never approach a dock faster than you want to hit it. So if mm. you just take your time and yeah, going back to that, cause I think nowadays with all the issues, you know, it's, it's easy to pin fishermen against fishermen mm-hmm. and we're all out there for the same thing, which at the end of the day is having fun. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, if you take it way out of proportion and if we were talking a little bit earlier, you know, if, if we all fight amongst each other, it's, it makes this a miserable job and a yeah. fun job. And, we're and a fun there industry. are people who, especially we were talking about this earlier in the hunting industry, but it's true in the fishing industry too. If you're so busy worried about what's attached to the end of their line, if it's a flyer, it's a lure, it's a live bait you don't realize that there are real fights that are going to stop everybody from getting to do this. And that's one of the things that's been good for some of the different organizations, waterkeeper organizations and captains for clean water saying, Hey, we're not trying to have the fight right now about who is the most superior group of people in the world because of what they attach to a line here. We're trying to say, if we don't do better with the water, we're not going to have fish to even throw at. And I think that's, you know, the word for it is infighting, but I think that's a, a good reminder you know, with, with what you're talking about, about how people get intimidated. I mean, it is an intimidating thing to go into, to go from, well, I, I see the fish first to now I'm like, how do I even know I'm in the right zone or if this is good bottom? And I'm curious if you could help people. How do you learn how to learn? Yeah. It's, uh, if that makes sense. It does. There's uh, I don't think there's any replacement for, for time on the water. And I think that's why there's, uh, always going to be a career for a guide. You know, we, we take a lot of like a lot of time away from our, our families and our, our everyday lives to, to be on the water. Um, but those are just hours that add up. You know, a guy that's been doing it 20, 30, 40 years, they've they're successful and they can pay bills for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, most likely because that much time on the water they're producing, they're catching fish and they have a successful career. Um, you know, it's like reading water uh, or doing a, you know, doing a like we're on a podcast or if I do a a fishing seminar and I'm on a stage and I'm showing people like, Hey, here's how fast I like to, to work a lure. Here's what to mm-hmm. look for. Well, that's in a controlled environment, um, until you're out there day to day. Um, I'm not saying the, the guy that has the most years on the water is the best, but there's certainly an exponential graph. You could probably look at the more hours on the water, the more fish sure. you're going to catch, um, or know what, you know, eliminating water is a big thing. So you can kind of know, like, we're wasting our time. It's time to move. Let's, you know, stick it out, grind it out. There's, there's a lot more than, than pulling up to a spot. And that kind of goes back to why I don't mind, you know, if, if people book me to learn, um, I don't hide my spots or why I'm there. I, I like to teach them, um, a mm-hmm. little bit. And in return, maybe I'll call them in a couple of weeks and say, Hey, have you fished that spot? Give me some Intel back, you know, cause I might fish a whole different area. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I'd rather not beat around the bush and take people to crappy spots. I want I want them to catch fish. Um, you can learn from other people too. I think it's uh, it's a fine line. You know, the more information you share, uh, the more you get back. And and I could also see you know the other flip side of that is beating the spot up too much or a school of fish too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a fine line there, but. Yeah, I think, uh, I, again, I, I, going back, I just don't think there's any replacement for time on the water, mm-hmm. hours on the water. L- let's let's do this exercise, because can we talk about hogfish some? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Is there any black magic there? Is no. anything off limits? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that's something that, you know, my father's interested in. I'm interested in just learning more about hogfish. We do mangrove snapper, red snapper, grouper, a um, lot of offshore species and stuff, and just haven't really got into that. So let's create a scenario where you and I are – on the boat together and we're going out to catch hogfish and you're going to teach me. Yep. And through my eyes, I'm trying to learn. And I think we've all been in scenarios where we had a really good day on the water, but we were like, I've, I've had this where I'm like, I wasn't paying attention to the right things since I didn't learn as much. So we're, we get on the boat. What things am I paying attention to? Yeah. Like if you're controlling my mind, you have mind control powers. So <laughs> hogfish is one of those, uh, like patience fish okay um and patience in a good way so you know there, there's uh the opposite would be you know hey i want to go out and catch a tarpon on a fly well mm-hmm. that that's going to be a long learning curve you know patience and you're either going to get one on a fly or not like mm-hmm. you might go 10 12 15 30 days in a row and, and just not have that magic button that got that that tarpon eat your fly period and you go home with zero fish to talk about um hogfish is the opposite it's a patience fish and you might have a really crappy day, not catch a hogfish, and you're still going to catch a hundred other fish, whether it be mango snapper, or flounder, or sheep's head, or grunts, or anything mm-hmm. else. So it, it's kind of a an easier learning curve in that way because mm-hmm. um, you're doing the right thing. It's just either they're there or they're not, um, and you're getting past the other fish or you're not. So um, going back 15 years ago, hogfish was pretty much strictly a, a spearfish sport. Uh, people said you can't catch them, hook them on. I grew up in that era. I always thought that. I mean, I didn't catch my first one until probably 10 years ago. Uh, but that's also because the amount of offshore fishing I did, uh, you know, we would t- typically go out during tarpons or during a uh, grouper season with big pin fish and six ounce weights and, you know, four or five, eight ounce or eight uh, odd hooks, you know, and fish. And you're not going to catch a hogfish doing that. That's mm-hmm. not the right, you know, you might be in the right zone. They might be down there, but they're not going to eat a big pen fish. Now, quick pause. Yep. How do you know you're in the right zone? So the opposite in a way of, uh, of grouper fishing or snapper fishing or anything, um, typically you go offshore, you look at your sounder, whether you have a side scan or just a down scan. I mean, even back in the day with the, the old school graphs, you still wanted to see either a break or a, a ledge or hard bottom. You know, you want to, you want to see fish. You want to see something on your machine. Mm-hmm. Even if you suck at reading your machine, you won't, you don't want to see just flat bottom. Yeah. Hog fish in a way is a little bit different. Um, flat bottom doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, there, there could be a ledge close by and, um, I've actually done, uh, the last three or four years now, uh, FWC hogfish tag studies. So we're, we're tagging and releasing a lot and we're, we're getting a lot of data back from that. Mm -hmm. And they have a a barometric tag that they put in some of these fish and they actually show that, that these fish during the nighttime or dark, dark conditions, they'll be on the upside of a ledge. And then when it's bright sun, they'll be on the, the bottom of the ledge. Um, they're not, they're rarely on the ledge itself. Um, and if they are, you're going to have to pick through so many other fish. Uh, the nice thing nowadays with a lot of the bay boats is you have a spot lock and you have a side scan. So if you're directly over a spot, that's got a ton of structure, 
um, maybe, you know, jot over 20 foot left or right and just keep bouncing around. Especially if you have, if you have a side scan, you can see mm-hmm. which way that ledge is going. The other nice thing is, uh, if you're group proficient with big tackle and, you know, big, big, uh, conventional reels, you're basically dropping straight down below the boat. You're fishing mm-hmm. below the boat, uh, for hogfish. You guys can just take your, your redfish setups. You don't need any you know, specialized gear. 4,000 reels is plenty enough, uh, spinning reel. Now you can be in that same spot and you can cast, you know, 30, 40, 50 foot on each side of the boat. You're covering more ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's the key too, is, um, you know, if, if you dive down there, you're looking at a lot of sand bottom with sea fans and those hogfish will kind of stick tight to a sea fan. Um, that's something that's not going to show up in your sounder. So if it's just hard bottom, start fishing it. Um, and you can also tell if you're in the right zone by the species you're catching. So if you're getting red grouper will mainly be on what I call Swiss cheese bottom. So hard bottom, a lot of sand, a lot of holes in there. So if you're getting a lot of red grouper, you're actually in the right zone. Uh, if you start getting a bunch of mangoes and gags, you're, you're probably right on a ledge or a break, uh, not a bad zone, but maybe cast 20, 30, 40 foot off of that. Mm-hmm. Just get away from that. And that, that even makes me think about, I, I don't know who invented this and surely there's no way to prove it, but you know, the fan fishing and how like the bass guys have all these different kind of approaches on that, you know, just kind of fan fishing out that, that zone. Is that what you would do is just kind of say, okay, I'm going to cast here a couple times and I'm going to shift. Yep. X degrees over here and yeah. Cast so, uh, even though you're using live bait and you know, it's no known secret you're using shrimp or sand fleas out there. So if you're throwing a shrimp, um, yeah, you can kind of almost imagine a bass fisherman with a worm mm-hmm. throwing, you know, 180 degrees around the boat and just, just fan, like say fan fishing. Um, so you can do that with a shrimp, you know, mm-hmm. launch it out at, at two o'clock, 30 foot from the boat. You're going to get a bite. That's the thing. You're using a shrimp mm-hmm. on the bottom. So you're going to get a bite, see what it is. Um, cast another 10 foot to the right and, you know, keep catching fish. So even though it's a patient's fish, it's like I say, going back to, to the tarp on a fly, you can get skunked a lot of times before you get one. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're not going to get skunked with dinner. Uh, you're going to fill the coolers no matter what. You may not get that hogfish that day, but you're going to have fish tacos. Yeah. I guess one of the things that's tough about that is like, depending on, you know, how and where you're fishing tarp and like, you might not catch a fish or hook a fish by any means, but you're most likely going to see fish, whether right. they're rolling or whether they're swimming. You know, with hogfish, it's like, oh, you might go three days and not catch one. It's like, how do I know that I'm just not in the absolute, you use the phrase eliminating water. Like, how do I know that I'm just not in some water that I need to eliminate, you know? I mean, if, if you're catching, well, if you're getting, uh, like a lot of squirrel fish that you're probably like, I always like to say squirrel fish is the only thing that lives in a desert. Uh, and we're sitting here looking at the Gulf of Mexico right now. It's, it looks like a cool body of water to go fish, but 99% of that is a desert. Uh, that's why the fish are concentrated where they are. So if you went out there without a chart plotter and you just ran out, you know, 10 miles offshore and said, okay, this, this looks cool. Let me throw an anchor and throw a shrimp out. Um, there's a better chance of you getting a squirrel fish than anything else. Cause you're probably just living in the desert out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can kind of get to some areas of hard bottom, um, wrecks start to get, uh, some kind of pattern you'll notice too, the more numbers you put in the machine, the more of a pattern you'll see. So most of the ledges, uh, off this coast here on Tampa Bay are actually all up and down the West coast of Florida. Um, those ledges are going to run kind of North to South, a little bit Mm -hmm. Northeast. Um, so you'll, you'll kind of get, get some areas, um, and some patterns down to where you're like, okay, this, this ledge, you know, runs this way. And and again, with the spot lock technology, it's awesome Mm because you can go fish one certain area instead of you know, pulling an anchor up and trying to move 50 foot, you just, you know, hit a button on your spot lock and move, move your 50 foot. Mm-hmm. So you can, and there's two rules of thumb. You can run and gun and go cover, you know, 50 area, 50 miles in a day. 
Um, or you can kind of go to one certain spot and just kind of work that zone. But, you know, to your question is it's a lot of it is judging what type of fish you're catching, what kind of, kind mm. of bottom. So squirrel fish move, um, grunts or red grouper stay, um, mangoes and, uh, gags you're on a ledge. So just stay there and cast a little bit further off. But yeah, weed through it. And then once you see, you know, a lot of times that water is so clear out there. Once you see that, that bright red color and you see a hogfish coming up, you're hooked, you know, mm. just, just like throwing a fly for 20 days straight, not getting a tarpon it jumps, you're hooked. So it's, uh, it's seeing it and eating it on the dinner plate. <laughs> well, I'm excited to send you a photo cause, uh, I I've still, I don't think I've got a hogfish. Yeah. So. You'll, um, you'll get one. It's uh, 20 dozen shrimp at a time. I'd have to like go back and maybe check a couple like photos when I was a kid and we just dock photos or something, but maybe, maybe, maybe I was on a boat and it happened, but I, yeah. I can't think of that. So, um, well, if you're good, I got some rapid fire for you and we can yeah. roll into that. Let's shoot. Um, my first one is what is the big thing you think that people who fish in the flats could learn and stand to learn from people who fish out in the blue water? Uh, a lot of it translates the other the other quick thing too i did want to kind of mention that earlier is uh, uh one of the things is inshore you're going to basically base a lot of your fishing times on your tides you know where you are it's it's very tidal dependent when those fish are going to chew and why they're sitting where they are um you know a lot of the inshore guys will agree is they, they fish tides no matter where they are it's it's all about your tides now offshore uh, is different because there is no ch- tide chart for offshore um, so some people might leave out of a port and go 10, 15, 20, 30, 60 miles offshore and say, okay, here's, here's what my tide chart says. Well, you guys know in Tampa Bay, even there's, there could be an hour, two hours difference between the Southern part of the Bay and the Northern part. So you're telling me you're going to run 40 miles offshore. There's, there's not a, there's not a tide. There's more of a, a loop current that gets in there. Mm-hmm. So when you're offshore, um, I mainly look at the, uh, the saloon cycle. So your minors and your majors. Um, and sometimes for the inshore guys, they, they skip that whole part all, all together because that, that phase doesn't, doesn't affect the fish as much as the tides, mm-hmm. but offshore, basically just a quick rundown on it is, uh, you get four moon cycles a day. So you have your, your minors is when the, the moon sets and rises, mm-hmm. uh, it lasts one hour each. And then your major is when it's uh, straight up and down. Um, and that's on uh, most of the, the charts will have it. Now you can go on your lunar cycles and see when that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, basically, a like a polar force that this fish, it, it turns the fish on. Anyone that hunts too, will say that too. Mm-hmm. You know, the deer will move on the minors and the majors. Um, so that's, that's the opposite. And I said, what's kind of something they could, uh, you know, could use that, that translates mm-hmm. back and forth. You know, don't overthink it. It's a fish with a mouth and a tail. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, you grind out inshore and you get that bite, that lucky bite, like when to move, when to not to move, you know, do the same thing offshore before you, before you try to reinvent the wheel, it's still a fish out there mm-hmm. uh, and vice versa. If you're used to offshore, you come inshore. I will be honest. Um, most of the audience is inshore guys and I'll give them a lot of credit. It's a hell of a lot harder to figure out inshore fishing anywhere in the world than it is to figure out offshore fishing. Uh, offshore, you're basically as good as your numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're sitting here now. I could write down a long longitude and latitude and say, go right here and catch a grouper. You could probably go out there tomorrow and catch a grouper. Um, I can't necessarily say, you know, here's a point on Google Earth. Go there tomorrow and catch a, a snook or a redfish. You know, you might not be there at the right tide cycle with the right bait with everything else. So uh, I give a lot of credit to, to the inshore side. It's uh, a bigger learning curve. If, if you could go back to yourself when you were... 12 and you started fishing tournaments and you're really starting to click in it. What advice would you give yourself with what you know now? Uh, have patience. It's basically, uh, looking back, I, I would run and gun a lot more. Um, 
you know, and when I started, when I started charter fishing too, that was, I, I wish I could have a list of my first six months of clients and call and personally apologize to them. Um, I probably was not a good guide whatsoever because I had a tournament background. So my basic day, when I very first started charter fishing, I said, I want to be the best charter guy in Tampa Bay. I want to go get a 40 inch snook every single day. So that's what I thought mate would make me a good guide. So I'd pick my clients up at the ramp, shake their hands, say, Hey, nice to meet you guys. You know, sit here, here and here, boom, 60 miles an hour to the first spot We'd power fish it. You know, they might catch like a 14 inch trout. And I would just be like, man, you know, unhook it, throw it right back. Like that sucks. You know, let's get something else, fish it for 10 more minutes. And then boom, 60 miles an hour to the next spot. And, and I was kind of negative if you weren't having a good day. Um, my version of a good day turn, from a tournament background versus your couple from Ohio or your family from you know Michigan coming down to fish mm-hmm. is different. So, you know, I get back to the ramp and people are like, well, that was cool. But, um, you know, when you were going, like we felt like we ran more than we were fishing or, you know, that first trout that we caught, that was my first saltwater fish. And I didn't even get a, to mm-hmm. take a picture with it. So I kind of had to think about it for a little bit you know because people are like well you you drove right by those dolphins back there the pelicans i'm like well i was born and raised here i'm spoiled that's this is our backyard it's a beautiful mm-hmm. place but i was like no I, you know i was trying to put you guys on a 40 inch snook i didn't have time to turn around and look at a, a stupid dolphin mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so uh then i kind of reevaluated it though and i and i i took a deep breath i said you know what like we do live in a cool place like dolphins are pretty cool you know if they're not messing mm-hmm. with fish but, yeah uh, or pelicans <laughs> are cool or you know i was like all right so now now, if you know, a couple gets on the boat or a family and, you know, if, if our first fish is a, a 12 inch trout, I'll take my time with it. And I'll say, Hey, it's mm-hmm. a trout, look at his teeth. And that's why he's got this, this, and this, you know, and, uh, kind of tell him a little bit about the fish and then release it carefully and get pictures with it. And, uh, I noticed my tips went up. So I'm assuming that <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm assuming that makes me a better guy and I'm getting more repeats and better tips. So, uh, I just learned to slow it down. The same could be said to your question about tournament fishing. Uh, I think sometimes we, we're so quick to, to get to that next spot and catch that big fish. And sometimes you just gotta, you gotta grind out a spot and just, just have confidence. And my biggest thing pre-fishing, um, I brought it up earlier, but eliminating water. Uh, when I pre-fish, that's the day that I, I hope I have the crappiest day. I don't want to, I don't personally, and this might not be everybody. I don't want to go out there and pre-fish and crush the fish. I'd rather eliminate water. I'd rather go to my go-to spots and they absolutely suck. And I don't see a single fish or a bait there or anything. If it looks like crap, then I know the next day during a tournament, if I'm having, a, if I'm struggling, having a slow day, I can eliminate all those other spots and go to my other go-to spots. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If, if you crush it on, on the pre-fish day, then there's days you can do that and have a great tournament day. But there's also days those fish move and now, now you're scared to go to your backup plan. So just uh, eliminate water and don't be afraid to grind a spot out. Philosophically for you, what do you feel like is the thing that's changed the most the past 10 years? Ooh, social media, hundred percent. And we're all guilty of it. I mean, Facebook fishermen, you know, looking at backgrounds, everything else. Um, so that's, that's definitely a game changer. And people like CA Richardson and, and Ray Van Horn, um, people that kind of grew up fishing in Tampa Bay and complained a lot about the, the pressure on the fishery and the fishery has changed. Um, I saw that just in my short time, you know, I was born and raised on Tierra Verde. Um, so I saw around the flats there, I can see the pressure almost, almost daily, more and more boats. Uh, but people like, like CA and Raven Horde, they made the next step and they actually moved away. They moved to more desolate places, you know, mm-hmm. Crystal River and uh, Chukalusky. So uh, that, that's one of the things. And it, it's something we can either fight and fight and fight. The thing is you really can't fight the, the population of progress in Tampa Bay, unfortunately. You know, we all want to have our little slice of paradise. And again, I was born and raised on Tierra Verde, and I was one of the 
only properties out there. You know, it was all mangroves and I used to ride my bike through the sand spurs and they're all, you know, big mansions, multi-million dollar houses and concrete now. So it's changed and you just gotta unfortunately work with it and, and, you know, don't make enemies on the water. Mm -hmm. That's so I know you have a background in, uh, real estate. What's one thing from your time in real estate that you brought into your fishing that you feel like it's helped? Uh, I mean, I grew up fishing. So when I would, <laughs> when I would preview or show houses on the water, I was more interested in running to the seawall and seeing what was down there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I got to learn a lot that way. What's funny too, um, for the sheepshead fishermen out there, uh, here's a little trick. So waterfront property isn't the same values no matter what city you're in you have you know more expensive waterfront than others what i have noticed is the older neighborhoods um you can go by price value and kind of see where the the less income waterfront properties are that's usually the better fishes uh better docks to fish uh reason being yeah. a brand new yeah. neighborhood with 10 million dollar homes they're probably going to have new docks and they're going to wrap them you know we all see the the little plastic wrap they're doing on the tie poles that's not good for, for holding fish. You go to these older neighborhoods with the concrete docks and all the big barnacles and the oysters and the, the crap that's been thrown down there for 60 years. Um, that's where your sheep's head are, a lot of your red fish. Mm -hmm. So kind of a weird, weird way to translate stuff like that. And everyone knows. Tip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they might be prettier houses to fish in, but, uh, go to those crappy waterfront homes, catch fish. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your favorite thing to do outside of hanging out with your family, like hobby interest wise, what's your favorite thing to do off water? That, that's a question I get a lot, like on charters too. Mm -hmm. You know, people are like, what do you do on your, your off days or your time off? And I, the honest answer is I fish. Mm -hmm. um, I, I travel a lot and I, I like to, uh, I like to go to a new area that I haven't been and I, there's no guide discount in the industry. So I'll go hire a guide and I'll pay him full price and tip him, you know, well, and, mm -hmm. and just go to learn and, and tell them like, Hey, I'm not competition. I'm not trying to find your spots or your techniques. I, I, that's what I truly enjoy to do. Mm -hmm. Um, especially in like these areas like Costa Rica and some, you know, in the Bahamas, like rig and ballyhoo, it's, it's different every area I go to. And I just kind of learn from that. And, and then I start asking, well, why are you doing it this way? And it's funny, just the difference in some guys using floss versus copper. It depends on where they are in the world and their income mm -hmm. level. Um, but that's truly, if I, if I have an off day, I don't, I don't like being on land, like being on land is expensive. Um, you got to fix the boat and pay bills and I, I, <laughs> I prefer to clean be the, the house and yeah. you're joking about that today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Land, land gets really expensive. Yeah. Um, so give me uh, I have a beard. You have a, you have a nice beard. You got a lot of length on the bottom there, yeah. you know, uh, give me, give me a beard tip. Beard you got tip. any beard tips? Oof, that's a lot of a good question fishermen and beards yeah have a long history the natural i mean i got long blonde hair and i get the the cougars will always come up and say what do i do to my hair because it's they like it <laughs> i guess it's natural highlights and my tip there is go fishing more just be in the sun yeah. <laughs> buy the cheapest uh, i don't even know what brand shampoo it is whatever is two dollars at walmart and uh that's the secret there's the some chemicals in there that yeah. lighten it and <laughs> keep it uh that's it if this is this is my last question for you but if you could if you could put something on a billboard and let's go positive let's eliminate let's let's eliminate water here if you could put something on a, a billboard that everybody had to see when they were getting on the water in Tampa Bay what what would it be that would maybe help them just be all around better anglers and better boaters you said i can cuss on this yeah of course don't be a dick there you go <laughs> i mean <laughs> that was plain and simple yeah yeah well i mean yeah that's 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 in line with don't make enemies. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I, I, I would like to see like more of that. I, I just, I just feel like, you know, 
watching what's happening with with connections I have in the hunting industry and just how, you know, you're sitting around arguing about muzzleloader and rifle and bow all the while people are taking massive amounts of land and stopping people from being able to hunt period who really won. Yeah. All of them lost together. Yeah, yeah exactly. And they're so worried about beating each other that they realize that they were all being beat by people who don't care about their, the, the traditions and the activities in the larger umbrella that they love. And that's my, that's my fear for, that's my fear for the fishing community. Cause you just think that, Oh no, that's not going to happen to us. It's not going to, and it is, it is happening right now. Yeah. And they've, they've done that successfully, uh, in the red snapper fishery. And that's a whole another, you know, two hour conversation we won't get into politically, but on the red snapper sector separation, which yeah. is an easy word to say. And people are like, okay, I get it. I understand it. Well, what that is, is they, they separated the 50% commercial quotas they took the other 50% recreational and they've separated, they've actually separated that sector into uh, recreational guys and charter guys. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've successfully divided that to hurt the quota for everybody all the way around. Mm -hmm. um, and as a guide, I should be like, okay, I'm for that. Cause I want more of my guide quota. Um, granted, I don't have the offshore permits, but I, I see how both sides are hurting because it's, it's hurting your recreational rank angler. And, and yeah, at the end of the day, the, the guide as well. Yeah. So, uh, we just, like Same said, with national parks, thinking this idea of, you know, fighting for habitat and this idea that, oh, you know, these, I live around a lot of state parks and national parks and stuff. And it's like, you think that that's just going to always be there because it's been there for your whole life. And that is not what's happening across the board. So I appreciate the time, man. I think that um, it's really fun for me just to get to hear about kind of the scope of what you're doing and I learned a lot and I'm grateful for the time. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And, uh, that was a good time last night at the, uh, the live, uh, live, uh, podcast there. It was, uh, it was a good time meeting everybody. And, and, uh, I don't dabble in the fly world as much as, you know, all these guys that were there last night, but it's cool hanging out. Yeah. yeah we're, we're all chasing the same fish. Well, I'm excited for you to come up to our area and hang out together. And I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Good luck. Get that hog fish. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to the captain's collective podcast. Help us out by sharing this podcast with your friends online and leaving us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand the number one hunting and land management app. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.